and turn to 1 Samuel 21. Our text this morning is 1 Samuel 21 through chapter 22, verse 5, so about 20 verses or so. Again, if you're visiting us, welcome. We uh, have the regular pattern of going verse by verse through the Scriptures. God gave us 66 books. He gave us uh, books that start with some words and then continue on and progress in their development and understanding and their arguments. And, and so we trace books from beginning to end and see all that God intends for us to see. We see verses in context rather than ripping them out of context and making them say whatever we want to say about them. So we just simply want to know the Bible the way God has laid it out. And so today we find ourselves in uh, 1 Samuel 21. We've been going through this book for a number of months now, and we've got a few more. But the Lord has been showing us that this book is wonderfully relevant to us today. Don't know if you've experienced that. I trust that you have. I've definitely experienced that. So the God, our God speaks. His Word is living and active, Old Testament and New. 1 Samuel 21 to 22, verse 5. Please follow along as I read that. David's been, uh, David's just left Jonathan. He's on the run. He's on the run for his life. Saul, the king, is trying to kill him. And we read these words starting in chapter 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I've charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now, then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now there was a certain man of the servants of Saul that was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not a, here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take that. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but, but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, and the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. 
And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet, of, the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Don't know what you think about road trips. Uh, some road trips are a joy. Some road trips, you know, the kids are all holding hands and singing songs and sharing toys, and it's wonderful. Um, you laugh as if that's never happened. Uh, some road trips are enjoyable. You see wonderful sights, you stop at good restaurants, and uh, really the journey to your destination isn't, isn't bad. It's rather a pleasant experience. You know, you make good time, gas prices are cheap, um, and then you take road trips in 2021 where gas prices aren't cheap and maybe things happen and car breaks down 30 minutes in and uh, traffic happens. So you all know what I'm talking about when you hear about good road trips and bad road trips. Um, in this passage, David is going, he goes to five different sites in 20 verses. The author of 1 Samuel is showing us David's journeys and he's teaching us lessons about David's response to the trouble that he's in. So we're kind of following David on a road trip, and we're seeing how he reacts to certain things and what he does to escape from Saul. And really, this trip that David's on, or this, this fleeing that David's on, you can see two types of responses from David. You see first a bad response. You see actual sin and deception. You see that in the first two places that he goes. And then toward the end, you start to see him take some responsibility and actually trust in God. You see that at the very end of the passage. So in seeing David's journey from sin to trust, there are things for us to understand about someone who is a child of God, promised things by God, who is tempted to fear God or to fear circumstances. We can learn from David. David has promises, a relationship with God, yet he's still fearful and responds wrongly. But then he starts to trust. There's a lot for us to learn, as I said, and I think as we go through this, you'll see some things maybe for your own heart as you think of ways that you might be in fear, might be in a difficult situation. What can we learn from this passage? Well, the Bible has things for us to learn from this passage. As I said, David's in five different locations in this passage, 20 verses, because he's trying to survive. He's trying to stay alive. He's afraid of King Saul. We know David's been anointed as the future king. Not everyone in Israel knows that. Evidently, the word's getting out, and people in Gath, a Philistine area, think that he's a coming king. So, word's getting out. Saul does not want him to be king. He wants his son Jonathan to be king. Saul is trying to kill him, and David runs. And as David's on the run, we see his response to his circumstances. So again, we're meant to learn from David's mindset as he's in a fearful, a difficult situation. Let me say a few words about fear before we dive into the text, because I think this will help us understand 
um, just what's at stake here. Fear, as you know, is dangerous. Fear is dangerous to Christians. Over and over throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, we're told not to fear, not to be fearful. Fear can do a number of things. Fear projects things into the future that haven't happened and may not happen. And it, and it causes us to be afraid of make-believe things, things that haven't happened. Fear causes the heart to be suspect of God's heart, especially if you're a child of God and you're fearful about things happening to you or in the world or whatever it may be. If you're fearful, there's a certain uh, suspicion that you have about God's heart. Certainly, you, you, take a, you can take a theological test and say, is God worthy to be trusted? Yes. But then we put our pencil down after taking that test, and we go and we're afraid of everything, forgetting that God is our good shepherd, our Savior. He's promised us salvation from beginning to end. So fear can cause the heart to be suspect of God's heart. Fear does not worship You don't worship when you're afraid. Fear does not adore. Fear questions, fear worries, and worship and adoration do not fit with questioning God or worrying. Fear doesn't believe in God's promises. Again, it might in the head, but not in the heart. Fear tries to recruit others into being fearful. Last couple of years, Christians have tempted one another toward fear day in and day out, in person, on social media. Be afraid of what I'm afraid of. Fear seeks to be comforted by a change of circumstances rather than a, your relationship with God. Fear seeks to be comforted by a change in circumstances rather than the relationship that you have with the living God. Fear can tempt us to sinfully try to control people and situations. Fearful people try to control, and that doesn't bring peace. So fear can tempt us to lie, manipulate, deceive our way out of situations, all because the issue that we're afraid of is certainly a bigger deal than these little sins that I'm doing just to try to get out of that. We see that in David. David lies and deceives two responses to a fearful situation in this passage. The two responses to a fearful situation. The first is sin, sinful responses to David's fearful situation. And the second is trust. We start to see that develop at the end of the passage. Again, David's been anointed king. Saul's trying to kill him. He's on the run. And in the first two locations on this journey, in the first two locations, we see sin. David's afraid, and so he sins, he deceives, he misleads, he lies. And you might be out there thinking, well, certainly God used that, and God was okay with that. I mean, Saul's trying to murder him, so it's no big deal if David engages in a couple of little sins, a couple of little acts of deceit. I'll give you from David's own words, in and around this time period, reasons that I think David came to his senses and thought, I shouldn't be deceiving Okay, so I'll give you that a little bit later, all right? So just tuck that away. David is sinning. He's deceiving people. He's lying as he is on the run. Let's look at chapter 21, verse 1, and we'll, I'll read the first paragraph and kind of highlight what's going on here. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? 
So David leaves Jonathan. David leaves and comes to Nob. This would have been a location where lots of priests would have lived and gathered. So David comes here, comes to the priest who may have been the chief priest at that time. And the priest you know, opens the door as it were and, and sees David there and thinks, why are you here by yourself? David's known in Israel, right? Women have been singing songs about him. David's killed his thousands. We've learned in 1 Samuel that David's already achieved a number of military victories. He's been set as a commander over a thousand. He's the well-known military leader. When you're well-known and important, you travel with an entourage. And David shows up. He's by himself. Ahimelech the priest knows right away what's happening here. It's as if a high-ranking official or someone came to your house, knocked on the door, and you're kind of expecting the Secret Service to be around, helicopters, why are you here by yourself? What's happening here? This is not a normal situation. Verse 2, and David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me, Saul has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter. This is a top secret mission about which I send you and with which I have charged you. He said, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So David says to Ahimelech, Saul's charged me the top secret mission. I'm supposed to meet some men here. And, and no one can know. That's why I'm here. Now, is that true? No. Okay? Saul's not giving him top secret mission. Saul's trying to kill him. Ahimelech doesn't know that. So verse 3, now then, what do you have on hand? He's hungry. <laughs> he, he's been running from Saul. He's hungry. He goes to the priest. Uh, maybe the priest will feed me. He gives him the story. What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, so the men that you're supposed to be meeting here, if they've been kept from women, war was a, was a sacred thing. So during times of war, and Ahimelech certainly thinks David's on some wartime mission, uh, men would not uh, have sexual relationships with women. They wouldn't do it. They'd keep themselves and then they'd fight the war and then go back to that. So Ahimelech's saying, I've got five loaves here. It's not, the, it's not the common bread. It's actually the bread for the priests. I've got that if your men have kept themselves from women. Verse 5, there's holy bread if the men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. Whenever I go on a military expedition, that's what we do, of course. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their best vessels be holy? We, we're on a special mission from Saul. Of course we're, we're able to eat the bread. Of course we've kept ourselves from women. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. So what's happening here? David's with the chief priest, with one of the priests at Nob. Nob is where the... the Maybe the tent, the tabernacle is at this time. There's, there's the idea that that's there. This is where uh, God is said to, to dwell and reign. And before God, before the priests, there's, there are 12 loaves of bread put there every week. And this is just bread for the priests. You're not supposed to eat this if you're not a priest. So there's 12 loaves of bread. After the Sabbath, they bring a new batch of 12 pieces. They would stack it into piles of two, so these little flat pieces of bread. And that would be for the priests throughout the week. And so only priests had that bread. And so David and his men, where are they? Don't know where they are. David and his men are hungry. They need bread. And so the priest says, hey, if you've kept yourself from women, you can, 
certainly have this bread. Now, Jesus taught us in Matthew 12 and Mark 2 that sometimes human need means that you're able to override ritual prohibitions. Jesus taught that. The Pharisees were so concerned about the bread and everybody washing their hands the right way. And Jesus goes back to this passage and says, David was hungry. He needed food. Calm down. It's okay. So, this, this scene is unfolding before us, and we see David's deception. We see that he's hungry, and God provides him bread. And then verse 7. Verse 7 is interesting. Verse 7 is like a little parenthesis. If you write it in your Bible, you can put a little parenthesis. It's like, where in the world did this come from? Why is this here right now? There's a reason, isn't there? There's a reason. This, this verse 7 is when you're watching a movie and you're following the characters and you're, you know, 20 minutes in, and then all of a sudden this random person shows up for 20 seconds and the camera focuses on them and you think, why in the world did, did they show up? Well, there's a reason. There's a reason. Just tuck that away. Verse 7, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, so one that served Saul. He was detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite. I'm just going to give you a heads up. In the next couple chapters, I might refer to him as Doug. It's okay. All right? You can just handle it. All right. Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. It's likely that this was, um, let, let's say, uh, kind of a troublesome figure. Uh, maybe he was a guy that, uh, you know, if you needed a job done and people weren't falling in line, you would just kind of send Doeg the Edomite and he would kind of take care of business and they'd fall in line. He's that type of figure. We're going to hear more about this guy next week. This guy is the muscle. This guy will do what it takes to serve Saul. But here, all we know is David's here, comes with a story, gets the bread, and parentheses, oh, by the way, there's this guy over here. Verse 8, then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? Okay, thanks for the bread. I'm full. Do you have any weapons here? For I have brought neither my sword nor weapons with me because the king's business requires haste. Okay. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me, that this, this is a great sword. I'll take that. After all, David's the reason that it's in Israelite possession. So David takes that sword. He takes the sword of Goliath. Verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, do you remember Gath? Do you remember what Gath is? Gath is a Philistine city. Do you remember which giant is from Gath? Goliath. What in the world is David doing? David killed Goliath. After David killed Goliath, the Israelites chased the Philistines and killed their men, their military. There would be, we can speculate, there would be widows in Gath whose husbands died because of David's victory. And David goes there with a giant sword clanging on his belt. Why in the world is David going to Gath? Well, remember, who, who were the enemy of the Philistines? The Israelites. Who's the king of Israel? Saul. So David might think, and there's speculation to this, but he might think, listen, 
The Philistines hate King Saul. I know they probably hate me too. But if I go and say, hey, Saul's your enemy. He's the actual king of Israel. I'm here. I'll fight with you. Maybe they'd welcome him in. This wasn't an uncommon thing. I've told you before, and we saw this in 1 Samuel. There were Israelites that would go and fight with the Philistines sometimes. Because the, Philistine, the Israelites thought, well, they're actually the stronger ones. They're going to be victorious here. I'm just going to go on their side. That thing happened a lot. So maybe this is part of that. David goes and thinks, maybe I can find relief here. This shows David's desperation. He, did, he didn't just have some huge fortress that he could go to. He didn't have some top secret bunker he could go to. He's not even the king. Saul's got his servants out there. Saul controls the military. David's on the run. This shows how desperate he is. He goes to Gath with Goliath's sword. Verse 11, And the servants of Achish, so the king of Gath, his servants, said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Again, words got out. David's an up-and-coming king. Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. The servants of the king of Gath, Achish, his servants know the songs the Israelites sing in celebration of David. They get the frequency of Israelite radio. They've heard these songs. They know David celebrated for his military victory among the Philistines, over the Philistines. So the servants are saying to Achish, king of Gath, hey, you can't keep this guy here. He's not with us. He's our enemy. Verse 12, David hears this. He hears the servants not welcoming him, but actually telling Achish, this guy's trouble. David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Oh no, this plan's not going according to how I thought it would go. I'm not welcomed here. And David's fearful. The text tells us that he's afraid. So, out of desperation, verse 13, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard in their hands. He was probably detained. He was probably arrested. And so he starts acting as if he's crazy and insane to get out of it. He's desperate. Then Achish said to his servants, listen, you see the man's mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought him, this fellow, to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Might have been some criticism of his men right there. I got plenty of crazy people. Why'd you bring him to me? Make no mistake. God is getting David out of the situation. God's sovereign over all this. Even David's sin, God's sovereign over He's going to use it for his purposes. But what I want you to see here in this chapter, chapter 21, is the desperation, the fear. David's afraid, he deceives. He's afraid, so he goes to one of the enemies of Israel because maybe that would be better than going into the hands of Saul. He's desperate, he's afraid, he lies. He's brought into a situation where he's got to do deceitful things. This is where David's at. So let me ask this, are there any ways that you are tempted to sin even today this week because of something you're afraid of? You're afraid of a certain situation, you're nervous about something, and so you're, try- you're manipulating. You're being a little deceitful. You're sinning blatantly. Are there any ways because of fear that you're sinning? You're a student 
second semester. I want to go to this school. I want to get these grades. Go to, I've got this plan for my life. I'm not doing well. If I just plagiarize this paper, it would, it's not that big of a deal. Plus, if I plagiarize, I'll get a good grade, and then I'll get to go to this school or get this job, and God's going to use me in that field. So little minor sin for a greater purpose. Are you keeping something from your spouse? Because just dealing with the truth would be more difficult and cause more pain, so we'll just keep it from them. Are you spreading false information about someone or some situation because you're fearful? And even if it's a little sin, no big deal. I mean, the bigger problem that I'm afraid of and we, that we should all be afraid of is a much bigger deal. So big deal if a little sin kind of, you know, tries to thwart that. Are you slandering someone because you're not able to control a situation that you're afraid of? We understand the temptation that David was in. We understand a desperate situation and being fearful. And David doesn't respond the right way here. And again, I'll highlight in a moment how David actually writes a song shortly after this account at Achish. He writes a song where he calls the people singing it and listening to his song, he calls them to honesty and speaking truth right after this situation. So David knows that this wasn't the right approach. But, but we can do this, right? We can justify our sin because there's a greater problem out there looming. So we think that, you know, because there's that great problem out there, we can sin and kind of get away with it because, after all, that thing is happening. I remember... Um, working at a hotel in college, and it was during one of the uh, Republican presidential primaries, and there was a presidential candidate coming to the hotel. Many of you would know who this person was, and he came in. He was, he was not well-known at the time. He's more well-known now, but he came in, and he kind of was traveling just with another person, so just the two of them. Comes into the hotel, and, and he gives his name, and I look at the reservation, your name's not here. No, no room. And he was running against a candidate who was about bringing morality back to America. And what had happened, we found out later, was that that candidate's campaign called and canceled this guy's hotel reservations throughout his trip. This happens all the time. I mean, all the time, okay? Even with the morality candidates, all right? But, but it just goes to show that, hey, I'm the morality candidate. We need to bring morals back to America. Even if I engage in some underhanded things, it's for a bigger purpose. No, wrong. That's just completely wrong. David's not a great example here at the beginning of this passage. He will be later on. But I want you to turn to Psalm 34. Okay, we're on a road trip with David. We're going to kind of pull off and go to a couple, couple places not originally planned, but hang with me. There's some important things to see. Psalm 34. And just a little help with Bible study here for the future. Psalm 34. I don't know what your heading says there. Uh, English translators will give a heading as to what's happening. So my heading in the ESV says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's just a translator putting that in so you know what the psalm's going to be about. But what comes after that, the little tiny words in your Bible, that's called the superscription. Those are inspired. The Holy Spirit has put those in there so that you know things. 
Notice what Psalm 34 says, the superscription. This is of David, written by David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. This is just after the Abimelech situation. This is shortly after the Achish situation. This is right after that. And David writes this psalm. We're going to see in a little bit that David went to a cave for a time, the cave of Adullam. He could have written this psalm in that cave as he reflected on these uh, situations that he was just in. But he writes this psalm in light of that. So I'm just going to read the psalm. And I want you to hear the psalm in light of now you knowing the context of it. And again, just for Bible study purposes, if you're reading through the Psalms, let's say, and there's a, an actual connection back to 1 Samuel, I would encourage you, stop the reading of the Psalm, go back and understand what's happening in 1 Samuel. The Holy Spirit's making these connections for you to understand what's happening. Don't just read Psalm 34 and immediately say, I see how all these words apply to me. N- know the meaning behind them, and then you'll see some real application. Okay, so just, just an encouragement for you. And some of you might think, well, I can't do that because my Bible reading plan says Psalm 34 today. I can't pause it and go to 1 Samuel. <laughs> yes, you can. It's okay. All right? You can do it. It's all right. Psalm 34. That would be me, by the way. I'm that, I'm that guy. All right. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So it's interesting. Right after these two situations where David has deceived, he now says, I'm going to boast in the Lord. And it's likely that he's alone when he's writing this or the people that we'll read of in a little bit in 1 Samuel, the 400 and his family have just got to him. Okay, so, so he's either alone or they've just got to him. But he says, magnify the Lord with me. He's been alone and he's calling on people to worship God with him. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. We read in 1 Samuel 21 that he was afraid. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. What, what have we known about David's face so far? Had spit running down it? He was desperate. He was acting crazy. He was hungry. We know that about him. He's on the run. He's sleeping out in hills and mountains and caves. His face would not have looked radiant at this time. But he knows when I look to the Lord, my face is radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This is so good. David isn't at home in his own country. Saul's trying to kill him. He thinks out of desperation, I'll go to Gath. And then the servants of Achish, the king of Gath, are like, no, no, no. This guy is an enemy. We got to deal with him. Now David's not even welcomed in another country. There's nowhere for David to go. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have anything. He's afraid, and he says, the angel of the Lord. That's probably referring to pre-incarnate Jesus. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Listen, that's the one you want on your side. You want God himself, the angel of the Lord, to encamp around you. You 
you are the one who's going to be victorious over the Philistines, over Saul, over whatever it may be. God is on your side. That's where David rests. God's on his side. Verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, and those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Again, David's on the run, doesn't have a bunch of food at his disposal, doesn't have a bunch of things at his disposal, but he's saying, when you fear the Lord, when you trust him, when you're in awe of him as opposed to any enemies, when you are fixated on him, you lack nothing. We got to move on, but this is so good. Verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? All of us want to live long. All of us want to have a good life. And then notice this, verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Here's where I think David's had a change of heart. He's been speaking deceit. He's been lying his way out of situations. But this psalm is now about him trusting the Lord, and he's saying, don't speak deceit anymore. Learn from me. D- don't, don't do what I did. Do what I'm saying now. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and he heard and his ears toward their cry. If you just live righteously, you respond righteously, the Lord, and that's a sign that you're trusting the Lord. He's listening He listens to those that trust him, to those that trust him and obey. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. You can almost hear David saying, do you know where I've been lately? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteous righteousness, or those who hate the righteous, will be condemned. David putting himself in God's hands, saying, "You'll take care of my enemies." Last verse: The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Listen. As David's on the run, he is literally looking for places to take refuge in. He may have been writing this from the cave. And he's not saying that the cave is his refuge. He's saying that the Lord is his refuge. It's not even that the Lord provides a refuge for him. The Lord is his refuge. This is the song David writes on this journey. Something happens. David's thoughts turn. David's trust starts to come out. He trusts in the Lord and he doesn't fear enemies. I told you we were taking two little detours on our road trip. Here's the second one. Turn to 1 Peter 1. Sorry, 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. David is an exile, isn't he? David's on the run from Saul. David's now (laughs) leaving Gath to escape them. David's in exile. 1 Peter is written to Christians, new covenant people of God, like us, who are sojourners and exiles in the world. 1 Peter is written to those people. And 1 Peter teaches us some things about suffering without sinning. 
and suffering righteously. Again, Psalm 34, David's teaching that. Don't do as I was doing. Now do this. Be righteous. The Lord will care for his righteous ones. The Lord knows your need. Trust him. Don't be deceitful. That's what you get in Psalm 34. Now for the new covenant people of God, which we are, we get 1 Peter. You're an exile. You're a sojourner. The world, you're not, you're not home in the world. Here's how you suffer. Here's how you suffer righteously. And I'm just going to read a couple little sections. 1 Peter 2, 18 to 15. 1 Peter 2, 18 to 15. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. David was suffering unjustly. He shouldn't have been, his life shouldn't have been sought. So here in 1 Peter, he's saying, obey, obey your masters. If you suffer unjustly, it's a, it's a gracious thing. That means an attractive thing. It's an attractive thing when mindful of God that one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it that you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is, again, an attractive thing in the sight of God. There's a certain, there's a certain attraction to God. That's what the word means, gracious. There's an attraction to God when his people suffer unjustly and suffer righteously. He's drawn to that. Verse 21, for to this you've been called. No Christian wants to hear that. What's God called you to? Oh, this and that and this and that. This says we're called to suffering too. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. How did Jesus suffer? Maybe he deceived a little bit to get out of certain situations. No. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. He trusted in his Father, and he did not sin while he suffered, and he shouldn't have been suffering, but he suffered unjustly. And he trusted himself to God. David wasn't the example of that for us in the first part of 1 Samuel 21. Jesus is what David should have been doing. Jesus did what David should have done. Jesus went through it, told the truth, suffered for it, died for it. And we are given salvation because he did that. But Jesus isn't just our savior here in this passage. He's also an example for us. So in times of fear, don't sin. Don't look at 1 Samuel 21 and say, oh, David was a man after God's own heart. I can certainly twist the truth like he did a little bit. No, no, no. We don't, we don't do everything people in the Bible did. We do everything that Christ did. He's the example. He's the ultimate example. Suffer like him. Look down at verse 3, verse 6, talking to the believing wife who has an unbelieving husband. Notice this language. Talking to, to those ladies, he says, uh, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So, so don't be afraid, ladies. Don't be afraid, daughters of the Lord, children of God. Don't be afraid. Follow in Sarah's footsteps. Don't be afraid of anything that's frightening. Move on to chapter 3, verse 12. I'm sorry, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. 
Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So don't sin just because you're being persecuted or mistreated. Don't sin. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called so that you might obtain a blessing. For listen to this. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage. Can you guess what Old Testament passage he quotes? Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? For even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The Holy Spirit writes to the new covenant people of God, and he points them back to Jesus and his righteous suffering, and he points them back to David's words in Psalm 34 when he was suffering unjustly. That's why Derek Kidner says, every generation is indebted to Psalm 34. Every generation should learn from Psalm 34. We are exiles in this world. We understand a little bit of what David was going through. So what do we do? Don't sin because you're afraid. Trust in God and suffer unjustly, but don't suffer while you sin. Live righteously. Follow the example of Jesus Christ. So this is the first part of the journey of David. Back to 1 Samuel 21. First part of David's journey is that he sinned out of fear. But then we come to the second part of his journey Last five verses of this passage, chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. Now, David's journey isn't characterized by sin or deceit. It's characterized by trust or obedience. Let's, let's look down at the very last verse just to start, and then we'll kind of go back and work our way there. The very last verse, let me read that, 22, 5. Then the prophet Gad said to David, who, who sent prophets, by the way? God. God sent prophets. So the prophet speaks for God. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Leave and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth, which is in Judah. So I don't have a map for you, but I'm just going to do it okay, by using arms and everything. Okay? So if you're looking this way at a map of, of this region at this time, you've got the Mediterranean Sea over here right next to that Philistine territory. In the middle, you've got Judah. And then on the right, you've got Dead Sea and Moab just on the side of it. So in the middle is Judah. David is not welcome in Judah. Saul controls Judah. Saul's men are looking for David in Judah. So David, not welcomed here in his own region. So he goes to Gath of the Philistines right on the border here and quickly realizes that wasn't a great idea. I better act insane. I'm out of here. Okay? So he leaves the Philistine area and he goes, we'll see in a moment, he goes through Judah and goes around the Dead Sea and goes to Gath. So he hides for a time in the cave in Judah, cave of Adullam. 
Then he goes over here to a different enemy, the Moabites. There's a reason he goes there. Goes to the Moabites. And this prophet then, after he's there for a time, says, you got to leave and go back to Judah. That's where Saul's going to kill him. It reminds us of Jesus, right? Going to Jerusalem that last time, leaving Bethany. He knows what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. And Thomas' his disciple says, then let's go die with him. Jesus marching to Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Because he trusted God the Father. He knew he would die. He knew the Father would raise him up again. So David going back to Judah shows you David trusted in his God. Again, something happened in that cave. Something happened after Achish and Gad. Something happened. David now trusts. Okay, let's, but let me, let's go back for a little bit and connect some dots. Chapter 22, verse 1, David departed from there, so Achish, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. This is in Judah, so he's in, he's in the area that Saul controls, but he hides out in a cave, escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went there down to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him 400 men. What's happening here? David's on the run. He's so far by himself, but somehow he gets word to his family, and they're in trouble too. If, if David's trying to take Saul's throne, which is how Saul sees it, then Saul will go after David's family too. So David's family's in trouble also. So David lets them know where he is. They come down to him, but it's not just his family members. 400 of the riffraff of society are coming along with the family members, and they're coming to David too. These are people who were in distress, who were in debt, and who were bitter in soul. These are people who Saul's government is coming after, and these are the people who are opposed to Saul's government, and they're coming to David for relief. That's the group he's got with him. These men will join David, and you'll see some military victories later on in 1 Samuel. This is his group. It's a ragtag bunch of people. It's not the finest soldiers in the world. It's the people who were in debt and needed to pay back their debts and were running from the government. That's who God brings to David. All right, here we go. And so God brings David, this group of people who he's going to use in the future. God knows what he's doing. And God brings David's family, and David will protect his family. Okay, so you picture about 400, maybe 450 people, who knows how many exactly it was, in this cave. That's not going to last very long. Okay, we've got to get out of here. So David thinks, I'll take them to Moab. Again, the Moabites fought the Israelites too. Why in the world would he go to Moab? Well, remember who David's great-grandmother is, Ruth the Moabitess, okay? His dad, Jesse, his grandma is Ruth. They're from Moab. So maybe we can go to Moab because I've got, I've got Moabite blood. My family members are from Moab originally. We'll go there. Verse 3, and David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. This is just temporary. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all that time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet of Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Leave and go into the land of Judah. That's not where you want to go, David. David. 
But God was communicating to a prophet telling David, go back to Judah. Go back to where you think you might die. God was leading David back to the valley of death, back to the place where he is perhaps going to be captured and seized. God leads his servant back into the teeth of the lion. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth, again, which is in Judah. David trusts his God, and he goes back to Judah. Something happened to David. I don't know what it was. The Bible doesn't tell us. But David turned his eyes from deceiving his way out of something to just simply putting his hands, putting his himself into the hands of God and trusting in God. And David starts to obey God, even if it leads him back to Judah. Again, we can't read this without remembering the greater David, right? The son of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the night he was arrested, the soldiers and guards come to him and The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus stepped forward as he was being arrested. He didn't run and hide. He stepped forward to be arrested. Jesus, we're told in the Gospel of John again, set his eyes toward Jerusalem, and that last week, knowing that he would die, went forward to Jerusalem. His disciples were afraid. People were telling him, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. Jesus leads the throng to Jerusalem. Jesus similar to David. God brings David's family to him to care, to care for. David cares for his family, gets them to move up. Reminds me of Jesus on the cross telling John, take care of my mother. Mother, behold your son. Even in his suffering, he's caring for his family, Jesus is. Jesus endured the cross, as 1 Peter 3 told us, because he entrusted himself to his God. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. There's a great trust that leads Jesus to go to Jerusalem, to suffer and die, and aren't we thankful for the commitment of Jesus to his own death? I mean, we are here and forgiven because of that. What a Savior. Didn't run and hide. Didn't, he just went to the cross. Was it painful? Yes, it was. Was it difficult? Yes, it was. But he went and suffered and died for his people. I think this is a good time just to say, if you're, not, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. There, my hope is that you would hear from this passage in 1 Samuel about one that came after David who suffered without sinning. And the Bible tells us that he suffered so that we would be saved. He suffered in our place. There's a lot to be afraid of in this world. Really, the thing that we're all afraid of, whether we say it or not, is death. We don't want to die. The Bible teaches that Jesus came to die in your place, suffer the wrath of God in your place. So your physical body will die. Your soul will always be alive. You'll have a renewed body in a future day. But the Bible tells us that when you trust in Jesus, you will have eternal life because he suffered and died in your place. And the grave could not hold him. He rose again, proving his victory over death. Your greatest fear Death was overcome by Jesus Christ. 
And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, says that he, if you trust in him, he's just the first fruits. You will come out of the grave too. Eternal life is available to those that trust in Jesus Christ. There is one man that's overcome death, no others. He didn't overcome it because he followed the right diet, because he followed the right government restrictions. He didn't overcome death for any of those reasons. He overcame death because God is the author of life, and he raised his son from the dead, and he promises life in his name. You trust him, you get eternal life. He's the solution to your greatest fear, Jesus is. So I'd invite you, admit your sin to him, ask him for mercy, and tell him you trust him for life, for eternal life. That's why he came. But for the Christian, before we end, I want to remind you of this. David's in a fearful situation, and God doesn't just take him to a beach off the coast of Spain. I'll make you king here. I'm I'm just going to give you eternal comfort right now. You'll be fine. Sometimes our God leads us back to Judah. He leads us through difficult situations. Our God's way of guiding His people is not often around difficult situations, but through them. But hear the words of Psalm 34. You can trust in this God. You can trust in His care for you. In Psalm 34, we heard the words, taste and see that the Lord is good. When I think of tasting something that's good, I think of being at a nice restaurant with my wife and, you know, trying something that someone recommended and, oh, this is good. I mean, just such a wonderful environment. There's a jazz piano player over there. We're eating this food. Oh, this is so good. That's not often the way God communicates his goodness to his people. Sometimes it's while you're in a cave. Sometimes it's when you're on the run. Sometimes it's when there are fearful circumstances around you and you determine, I'm going to trust my God. I know He's good. Many of you know the famous Christian Elizabeth Elliot. She, her husband died, a martyr, raised her kids in the fear of the Lord, trust in the Lord, just known for, to be a wonderful Christian woman. Uh, She at a period in her life, did a, did a radio show called Gateway to Joy. And one time a caller called in a lady and said, how can I be such a great woman of faith like you are? And this writer says this, sensing that the questioner was seeking some sort of immediate fix or magical spiritual pill, Elizabeth said something to this effect. Well, you can have your husband killed by a hostile Indian tribe in Ecuador and then live among those savages raise a child as a widow, marry a second time and become a widow a second time, and deal with dozens of other challenges of life, and then maybe you too can have a great faith. Friends, I just want to remind us that the Lord often calls us to taste and see that He's good, not when we're in some wonderful, you know, environment, but sometimes it's when we're in a cave. But if you'll go back to the character of God and trust in who He is and what His promises are to you, you can indeed taste and experience that He is good for you. He loves you and He cares for His own. Let's pray together. Father, we're all tempted toward fear at different times, but I'm asking you to remind us of your character, remind us that you love us, remind us of your power and your promises and the future that you promised to us. And while we're in those caves and valleys and forests and difficult times, Be near to us. Listen when we call. 
sustain us, give us what we need. In whatever way this prayer is true for the hearts and souls in this room, I pray that you would answer them. Be near to us, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.